Well, good evening. I am glad to see you this evening, and I appreciate uh, this congregation more and more each time I am uh, with you and uh, each time I have the opportunity to visit with uh, some of you in a more personal way. I am uh, thankful for the hospitality that you have shown to me, and uh, particularly those who have had me in their homes, as the Delks did this afternoon. And uh, I appreciate the kind words that some of you have said, kinder than I deserve. Uh, I appreciate Leland's uh, efforts. Uh, we were supposed to have a Bible class at the building here this afternoon, and due to some schedule changes, that didn't happen. But uh, David and Leland and I stood in the hallway for an hour and had our own uh, conversation and Bible study. And I appreciated that very much. Uh, he was very uh, diplomatic, was he not? about uh, the preacher. Uh, yes, I, I appreciate you all the more that uh, you have been here through the uh, four days of the meeting thus far and that you've come back. Uh, a torrent of words. Some people are just amazed. Uh, sometimes I am amazed. Uh, now you know what my students uh, uh, go through day after day, some of them for year after year. And uh, sometimes I think they come to class just to time and see how fast uh, Willie hit 250 words a minute today. Uh, maybe so. Maybe this will be the night that that happens. A uh, lot to say, and uh, unfortunately, again tonight, uh, as some of you have observed, uh, probably not so much preaching, much more meddling than uh, just uh, straight preaching. But uh, there's a reason for that. That is, uh, for Christ to have the influence that he wants on us, he has to permeate every aspect of our being, every thought, and every part of our lives. And in contrast to that, these modern isms that we have been considering this week are so diabolical and dangerous because they too permeate every aspect of our life. And if we are going to uh, take every thought captive, then we need to uh, look deeply into every cranny of our lives. And tonight, we're going to take on a different one of these isms. That is the issue of hedonism, a word that is not mentioned specifically in the scriptures, but you find something very similar to that in Philippians 3 and verse 19. Philippians 3 and verse 19, uh, Brethren, join in following my example, the Apostle Paul writes, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ." Our theme tonight is hedonism or this idea of their God is their belly, their God is their appetite in the modern uh, versions. Exactly what do we mean when we talk about that kind of a philosophy, that kind of uh, ism? I was reading an article in uh, the Sun City Retirement Center paper the uh, other day, and uh, they were delighted to tell about the kind of lifestyle that they lived there, and they characterized that by 
the message that some people had left on their uh, phones when you call them and they don't pick up. It says, we're either in the pool, on the golf course, or in the jacuzzi sipping wine. Uh, that sums up the good life for many people. That uh, is the aim of retirement, to get to that point in life in which they can uh, spend the idols of the day doing nothing but pursuing pleasure. That is hedonism. That is hedonism coming from the Greek word for pleasure, the search for pleasure, a life that is devoted to making ourselves happy, whatever that word may be. Uh, I'm not sure whether Thomas Jefferson really thought in terms of hedonism or not when he penned the words in the Declaration of, the Independ of Independence that we are uh, given by our creator unalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness may very well be a bigger word than the idea of pleasure-seeking, but for many people, happiness has come down to this idea of seeking pleasure. The idea is more than just that we ought to have some periods of recreation and periods of pleasure in our life, or that we ought to, uh, uh, that we deserve happiness. It is the sense, really, that the end purpose of man is to be happy. The end purpose of man is pleasure, and that the standard by which we decide the issues of life is on the basis of whether it is going to be pleasurable or not. Not all happiness is hedonistic in this negative kind of sense. The Bible certainly uh, presents to us a, a life in uh, righteousness is a life that is uh, going to have its measure of happiness. And of course, once again, the word happiness may mean a variety of different things. We might, in fact, look at the Beatitudes and read them as happy is the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness' sake, for he shall be filled. That kind of blessedness is on one end of a concept of what happiness is all about. That is living a life that is in keeping with God's plan for us. Whereas hedonism, the idea of just physical pleasure, is on the other extreme of trying to understand what happiness is or what will make people happy. The Bible certainly in, uh, indicates that we are uh, designed by God and that he has designed life so that we will have a certain amount of happiness. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 24, and I know I'm always a little suspicious when I start reading in the book of Ecclesiastes and quoting from Ecclesiastes. The title means the debater, and so you're never quite sure which side of the argument he is taking at any one moment in time. Yes, vanity of vanities under the sun, but then he comes back and he says something that seems to indicate Let's really understand what life is all about. And I think Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 24 is one of those places where he suggests that there is a, 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 a pleasure that we ought to take in our life, particularly the kind of pleasure that we can take in labor. Proverbs, uh, written, of course, by Solomon as well, also suggests this idea in Proverbs 5 and verse 18, rejoice with the wife of your youth. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon again in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9 says we should live 
joyfully with the wife whom we love all the days of our vain life, which we have been given under the sun. And he goes ahead to say, that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. And I think in some ways that's exactly what God intends for us, that we should take some pleasure, some happiness in the life that we live, in the work that we do, in the uh, families that we have and that we raise. This verse, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9, has a particular uh, place in my heart. Uh, my wife and I have been uh, the uh, beneficiaries of the will of many of our elderly relatives who passed on, and so we've accumulated lots of things from uh, uh, those, uh, those who have lived before us and uh, now have no use for those things. And uh, it's always a sentimental activity to look at the things that are left and to take some of those things for your own. And uh, one of the things that we got from uh, one of her aunts who passed on was uh, one of those uh, uh, bronze Bible stands that uh, sits on a uh, table like at the foyer and you open the Bible up and lay it open on that uh, Bible stand. And so we had that and, uh, you know, it seems like we've got it. We should put it somewhere. But that raises, as you can imagine, a really difficult question. What page are you going to open the Bible to? And uh, so uh, this was my choice the first time. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your life. God certainly intends for us to have that kind of happiness in our lives. But the Bible also warns us that some uh, activities that are pleasurable are dangerous. Luke chapter 8 and verse 14 in that version of the parable of the sower reminds us that there are those in whom the seed of the gospel may be sown in their hearts. And then when they have heard it, they go out and are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life and consequently bring no fruit uh, to uh, maturity because they have allowed some of them cares and some of them riches, but some of them just the pleasures of life to overwhelm them and to take first place in their life. And you make note too that uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy is warned by Paul about the kind of things that he's going to encounter in his work there with the church at Ephesus. And he says specifically that uh, in the last days, perilous times will come. And he describes those perilous times in a number of different ways. And among those, he says, they're going to be lovers of themselves and lovers of money they are going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are exactly the people that Paul had in mind when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3 that their God is their belly, their God is their appetites. They have put that in first place in their life, and that's going to be in these perilous times. That warning was, of course, true in Ephesus in the first century, 
And maybe for a time in America, under the influence of the pilgrims and the Puritans who came and sought a better way of life, religious freedom in America, perhaps for a period of time it seemed like maybe pleasure was suspect and there was no room for frivolity or card playing or excessive eating or drinking that distracted them from their attention to their Lord and from righteousness, but that clearly is no longer the case in America. Hedonism is back in America and we are, if we are not careful, caught up in that kind of pursuit. And there are a number of reasons why this kind of hedonistic kind of philosophy has returned to take a hold of the hearts and the minds, not only of Americans in general, but also unfortunately of those who are uh, Christians or claim that Christ is their savior. One of the things that uh, has affected America so much is uh, what may be called uh, doomsday kind of philosophy. The sort of dystopian idea we have in the world today, that things are bad and they're just getting worse. The movies about uh, you know the dystopian futures in which uh, we've been reduced to some kind of, uh, of a near poverty kind of existence. The idea that perhaps there's going to be this great plague that's going to be unleashed or nuclear weapons that are going to be unleashed and life is going to come to an end. That the world is going to self-destruct in some way and soon in our lifetime. That leads to the kind of philosophy that you might as well enjoy it today while you still have today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. These we call uh, going first class on the Titanic. You know, if it's going down, let's enjoy our last days anyway. Uh, but that kind of philosophy is not something that Christians ought to ever have any, any uh, part of. One of the other things that has led to return of hedonism in America today is this pleasure envy. The idea that there are other people who are having a better life than we're having. That other people have more pleasure than we have. In some ways that may go back to the 1950s, 1960s when it became working out in the kind of philosophy that came to be called in the 70s the Hugh Hefner playboy philosophy that uh, there is this uh, great life that some people could have, a life that's devoted to pleasure, sensual pleasure, and that uh, you should be envious that there are people who have that kind of pleasure in life and you don't have it yourself. And not to give uh, Hefner too much credit about that, there were many others in the 60s who were deliberately introducing this kind of hedonism into the mindset of America. And clearly today, it doesn't take any specific kind of uh, organization or any specific person to be promoting that kind of idea. It is replete on Instagram and Facebook and among the advertisers in America. You are missing out. This is the kind of life that other people are living and this is the kind of pleasure that they're having whether it is in the vacations they take or whether it is in the kind of clothes they wear or whether it's in the kind of food that they eat or the games that they play. Their lifestyle is designed and it is promoted 
by themselves sometimes and, uh, you know, some kind of perhaps uh, wishful thinking about the way they actually lived. But so many people are distracted from the focus they ought to have in their life by that kind of pleasure, envy, that hedonism has returned. And, of course, prosperity is always a dangerous uh, influence in our lives. Uh, there's no, uh, I guess, reason that we should uh, make a virtue out of being poor, but you recognize, as Ager's prayer suggests, that uh, we are at least equally distracted from serving God by prosperity as we are from poverty. That prosperity gives us too much time and too much money, and we're never satisfied. There's always something new, some new horizon, some new pleasure, some new satisfaction, some new adventure that we are uh, entitled and really almost obligated to seek. And, of course, the materialistic philosophy that we talked about on the Lord's Day, the idea that this world is all there is, that there is no accounting after this life is over, then there's nothing better than what we have here, and we ought to make the most of it. And what we have here is physical, and the making the most of what we have here should be really in physical pleasures, that is, hedonism. These ideas were held at bay for perhaps 2,000 years until the days of Freud and Darwin and the other materialists who began to uh, preach these ideas of doomsday, of uh, pleasure-seeking, of materialism, mix that with the kind of uh, prosperity that we've seen in the last 200 years in the, uh, Europe and in the United States, and all of a sudden, we've removed the Bible with its emphasis on the other world from people's way of thinking, and uh, we have thus removed the hedge against the excess of hedonism that had existed for so many years. This kind of return of hedonism is not something, as I suggested, that we read about directly in the scriptures. We do get some hints in the uh, passage in Philippians 3 and verse 19, where they worship their belly and they are opposed and enemies to the cross. We do get some sense of that idea of hedonism in that case. The worship of the belly is certainly not, uh, you know, the worship of, uh, of uh, the Buddhas with big bellies. I uh, do know have a man who has a collection of those uh, Buddhas, uh, mostly because he can laugh at the the strange shapes they take, but uh, that's not uh, what we're talking about here. We're talking about our appetites, whether it is food or whether it is sex or whether it is drugs or whether it is pleasure and adventure. These are people that are focused just on what gives them some thrill, some excitement, or some pleasure, and in that case, they have been distracted from or substituted for Christ their seeking of their own pleasure. So what exactly does that mean in practical terms when we talk about hedonism? Uh, three, maybe four specifics that we'll get to this evening. Uh, first of all, one that is uh, fairly obvious, and we recognize that right away, particularly when we talk about their God is their belly, and that is the uh, pleasures of uh, eating and food and uh, the things that go along with that uh, the old word that we used to use was gluttony, although as with many 
words from the past that were very serviceable and in fact uh, have no good substitutes. We're not probably supposed to use those words anymore. Nonetheless, uh, that's the word that I have put on the screens in front of you, the idea of we really do worship our bellies and that really does control what we do in our lives. Some of you may remember this, and I think it's probably third, fourth grade, somewhere along that line, that uh, I was first introduced to uh, this philosophy question, or at least as close to philosophy as uh, third, fourth grade boys can get. Uh, do you remember? Maybe those of you who are in third or fourth grade here can uh, uh, let me know whether that's uh, still the case or not. Uh, the question, of course, is uh, do you eat to live or do you live to eat? And uh, I remember that uh, my uh, classmates would go around with a great deal of seriousness. They would ask, do you live to eat or do you eat to live? And uh, I'm not sure I understood all the intent behind that, but there is some wisdom in that kind of question. What exactly is the focus of your life? Is the focus of your life just on the things that make life possible? Or do you have some bigger purpose in your life? Do you eat in order to take pleasure in that? Or do you eat so that you'll have the strength to do other kinds of things? And of course, God has given us food bountifully on this earth that is uh, nutritious and exactly right for us. And not only food that is nutritious, but food that is tasty as well. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, there's any number of those kind of uh, pictures you might bring up, whether it's a crisp apple or whether it is a uh, uh, just uh, right uh, tangy uh, orange or whether it is a, uh, a, uh, uh, a good steak. Those things certainly have a great taste to them. And God intends, I think, for us to enjoy this food rather than just eating in a uh, a uh, desperate attempt to remain alive. He has supplied us bountifully with tasty food, and uh, that's something that's a part of the life that he wants us to enjoy. But those natural foods uh, are uh, supplanted in our day and age by refined uh, sugars and refined taste that we consume in quantities. And just as stick to the sugar, 150 pounds per person per year. Uh, that's about 50 teaspoons of uh, sugar per day. Uh, and of course, you take the uh, apple, which might be uh, very tasty in itself, but you have a spoonful of sugar. And of course, I'm thinking about the white sugar. But then I remember uh, I used to sneak into my mother's pantry and the brown sugar and get a spoonful of that maybe with a little bit of butter mixed in it. That was like, uh, after that, there's no going back to apples and berries by themselves. They just don't have the taste that matches that. And more than that, it's addictive, not just addictive in the sense of how great it tastes, it actually changes the metabolism of the body. And of course, it's not just the uh, fact of the foods that we produce that are so tasty. Now we have to enhance that by advertising. And typically, the best advertising slogans are for, well, therefore, the most addictive and the least uh, nutritious foods that you could possibly get. Uh, loving it yet? Uh, aren't you hungry yet? Come hungry, leave happy, finger licking good, bet you can't eat one, obey your thirst. Those things uh, resonate with us, 
and they really don't need to resonate because those food items in and of themselves have all the addictive power that they could put into the manufacture of them. But all of this is an appeal to sensuality and based on the assumption that you have the right to pleasure and satisfaction and almost without limits. And as a result of that, of course, uh, and uh, I hesitate in uh, this uh, day and age, the last two years, to quote anything from the CDC or from the uh, uh, health institutes or from the doctors, but they have reminded us for the last 25 years or so about the growing problem, epidemic problem of obesity in America. 30% uh, of Americans above the ideal weight, and uh, yes, I don't take those numbers seriously, I guarantee you, if that were the case, I would only weigh 169 pounds, and uh, I, I would feel like, well, I'd feel like I needed to eat more if I weighed 169 pounds, I'm pretty sure. But we continue to see the increase in the average weight of Americans, uh, the increase in the percentage of Americans who are statistically overweight or even obese. Not to mention the other health risks that go along with that, uh, high blood pressure, cholesterol levels, uh, and uh, on and on almost without end. And of course, one of the solutions to that is to uh, diet for our health's sake. And uh, I don't know, we could take a, uh, a poll here. I am sure uh, Mediterranean diet, Atkins diet, Weight Watcher, South Beast, Zone diet, Vegetarian diet. Uh, you can make your choice. People have tried all of those and many, many more. Uh, exactly what works. Had an old brother, uh, Brother H.E. Phillips, who, uh, as long as I ever knew him, was sick and uh, some kind of health problems and was on some kind of diet. And he said, they've given me all of those. And I'll tell you, here's what the fundamental truth about dieting is. If you put it in your mouth and it tastes good, you better spit it out because it's not on your diet. And, uh, you know, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's true. I don't know. Or maybe we need to go back to Daniel and the three young uh, uh, Hebrew uh, uh, men that were with him there in, uh, in uh, Babylon and uh, just eat uh, weeds and water. But we're not concerned about health so much tonight. What we're concerned about and where our loyalties ought to lie is not with carnal things and pleasure, but with spiritual things and with blessedness. And the fasting reminds us that we are not just creatures who have to live to eat or eat to live, that we have a bigger purpose than that, and we ought to be focused on the bigger purpose than that. And the truth of the matter, the only way to blessedness or happiness is to be focused on something that is bigger than just the pleasures of this world. It's no wonder that the Jews thought that the uh, uh, religious man rested on three legs, that is prayer and charity and fasting, because fasting for them was a way of denying the rule of the body and just serving pleasure and of turning their attention to otherworldly matters, to spiritual things. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount didn't dispute that at all. In fact, he dealt with uh, charity and with prayer and with fasting. And uh, in each of those cases, he corrected their misunderstandings about those things, as opposed to telling them that uh, fasting did not belong in that category. And today we might think of fasting 
as being a good idea for spiritual development. Uh, some congregations practice that on particular occasions. Some individual Christians practice it themselves. But you'd better be careful about that because in the New Testament, uh, we receive the message that kind of outward uh, uh, manifestation of worship was not as useful as the Jews thought that it was. In Colossians 2 and verse 20, for instance, the Apostle Paul warns them about mixing together this syncretic kind of religion and borrowing things from various uh, other religions, worship of angels, and uh, putting that together with the worship of Christ, and uh, particularly about the idea of fasting. Do you subject yourself to regulations like do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using? This may have an appearance, he says, of wisdom and self-imposed religion and false humility and other neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. And I'll tell you this, I understand as well as anybody, I guess, the deceitfulness of the human heart. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, Jeremiah, you know, in the depressive surroundings of the work he was doing there in a Jerusalem that was bringing about their own destruction with their sins, he says the heart's more deceitful than everything. It's desperately sick, and who can understand it? And the sickness of our souls and the sickness of our hearts is such that when we start fasting, I guarantee you if we are trying to fast as a religious thing, as a spiritual tool, we'll end up thinking about how it's helping us to lose weight uh, at the same time. And instead of worshiping the big fat Buddha bellies, we'll end up worshiping the flat bellies and that's just as wrong as the kind of worship that focuses on eating too much food because it's pleasurable, fasting so that we can have the right kind of health and the right kind of body. That's a distraction too. And you have to understand this. The greatest value of the day in America is health. That surpasses everything. Sometimes you hear people will say that if you got your health, you've got it all. Or if you don't have your health, the rest of it doesn't matter. And of course, I understand that uh, being unhealthy is less pleasant than being healthy and that uh, we should be thankful for the health that God gives us. But that's not the end all and be all of life, which sometimes is a guy's uh, for worshiping the belly to worship our health as opposed to worshiping God. And uh, we need to make certain that we are not distracted on either side of the issue, either just uh, uh, in terms of obesity and gluttony or in terms of exercise and, uh, and uh, worshiping the body, not distracted from our service to Jesus Christ. This is hedonism in either direction. Well, I want to talk about another one of those aspects of hedonism in the world today, and this is an even more telling issue for our society. And of course, when you put the word sex on the screen, uh, everybody immediately uh, uh, feels the tension about that. That's a demonstration of how important this is in our lives. And it's an indication, too, of how little generally sex and its role in our lives is understood in the world around about us. It is uh, 
one of the areas in which you can find people focusing more on the pleasure that they will receive than on the kind of true happiness that uh, is to be found only in biblical patterns of life. And in fact, in the world in which we live, highly erotic and sensationalist society in which we live, you'll recognize that many people have been convinced that sexual pleasure is something they're entitled to and sexual pleasure is the only way in which they can find the kind of happiness that they are entitled to. And that they have been convinced that they are probably the only ones who are not finding the kind of happiness and sexual satisfaction that everybody else is, that kind of pleasure, envy that we talked about earlier. But you will also recognize this, a society that sets aside values and morality in its pursuit of sexual pleasure is going to find all kinds of problems arise in the place of the kind of happiness that they expected that they were going to find. In the world in which we live today, nearly two-thirds of unmarried 18-year-olds have had sexual intercourse. Nearly 25% of women in the United States today have had an abortion. 30% of children are born outside of marriage in America today. A half of those who are the firstborn in a family have been conceived outside of marriage in America today. In the 1950s, Senator Moynihan, who was a sociologist before he became a politician, had done a uh, study of inner city life. And what he discovered that was among the inner city black population, 30% of those children were born outside of marriage. And he wrote articles about that and became part of the popular press about how terrifying that was that nearly a third of the children were born outside of marriage and the kind of destruction that that was going to wreak in that society. And where we are today, a third, almost, of children in general are born outside of marriage. It is worse in other populations than, uh, uh, than uh, the 30%, because that's, that's just middle-class families for the most part. And of course, that produces much of the inequality that we see in America today. If uh, the politicians really were serious about solving the problem of inequality in America, that some people have a good life and uh, good prospects and some don't, that's where they would focus their attention. Children that are born into and raised in intact two-parent families have enormous advantages over those who don't have. Uh, a father and a mother who stay together and raise them together. More than that, one of the things you'll recognize as a result of this pleasure-seeking and sexual activity, a third of Americans by the age of 25 have uh, some form of sexually transmitted disease. Uh, and uh, what that would suggest is if you are uh, uh, planning on having a casual sexual liaison uh, with uh, just uh, a random selection from the population of the unmarried, you have about a 50% chance of contracting some kind of uh, sexually transmitted disease with one uh, case of sexual intercourse. And, of course, uh, as the Philadelphia lawyers or really the Arkansas lawyers would like to argue, uh, oral sex is not really sex. Uh, of course, that does reduce the chance of pregnancy and HIV, 
but doesn't reduce very much the chance of a number of other sexually transmitted diseases. These are the kind of consequences that the world sees uh, when it practices hedonistic seeking of pleasure in sexual activity. It's, uh, uh, you know, been, been uh, repeated throughout uh, history in many different civilizations, and now here it is in America. Part of the problem with this is that uh, we don't understand what the biblical purpose of sex was, that uh, it is an essential part of who we are. Last night, we talked about the fact that God created us male and female, and uh, we didn't speak so much about the sexual nature of that relationship, but in fact, that seems to be part of the reason why he created us male and female, that there was an intention that that would be a part of who we are and a part of the relationship that we have in marriage. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 again, and you go back to uh, that passage in which we read about God creating the man and creating the woman and how the man was created to tend the garden and the woman was created in order to be a help to him. And then uh, we read in the end of that passage in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and he will be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that one flesh relationship is the sexual union between the man and the woman. And lest you think that that was just for the matter of uh, reproduction, you'll recognize the passage that we had read earlier in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. And part of the enjoyment of that relationship is the sexual union that God intended between the man and the woman. And you should recognize this too. In Genesis, where we read about the one sex uh, the sexual union between the man and the woman, the one flesh relationship, that that was not just for the purpose of reproduction. I don't know how many years there was between the time that God created Adam and Eve and the time that they sinned, and how long it was from the time that they sinned and were expelled from the Garden of Eden before uh, Cain was born, but, uh, or Abel was born, but uh, it is clear that God says when uh, he created the man and the woman and put them in the garden and they were uh, those one flex, flesh relationship, that he said that was very good. They were with one another and they were naked and they were not ashamed. And uh, the relationship between them was part and parcel, the sexual union that they had with one another. That's what bound them together. And uh, that's the reason that he had given it, to bind them together. And it produces children. What a great blessing to the marriage when there are children that are conceived in that way. Uh, but uh, the Bible nowhere indicates, as some religious groups have suggested, that a man and a woman who are married should only have a sexual union in order to reproduce that was not uh, the intention from the beginning. The intention was it was to bind the two of them together. And that's really why it is uh, limited to marriage relationship. The sexual union between a man and a woman is too powerful not to be contained within marriage, within some kind of permanent relationship. You just look at the dangers of premarital sex that we just discussed. And... Uh, 
how in fact God intends the children who are born of a sexual union to be born into the relationship between the man and the woman that provides a family that can take care of uh, that uh, child. And that God has intended for us to have this sexual union to bind us together because it is, a, it is a glue that sticks a man and a woman together in a way that no other relationship can. Uh, I will go way back for some of you, since I see some folks here who are uh, my age perhaps. Uh, 1950 song, Mary Wells, saying, I'm stuck like glue to my guy. No muscle-bound man can tear my hand from the hand of my guy. I mean, that's exactly what God intends the relationship to be between the man and the woman. When they marry, they're bound together, and they're stuck in such a way that you can't pry them apart. And it is the sexual relationship that binds them together in that way. And it is, uh, you know, glued together. Like uh, you take two pieces of wood and you stick them together with glue, really good carpenter's glue, and let it dry, and then you try and pull them apart, and it's going to rip pieces out of one or the other or both of those pieces of wood as you separate them. That's what happens when a man and a woman come together in a sexual union, and then they divorce or they just casually come together and then separate from one another. It is going to result in some kind of damage between the two of them. And, of course, that's uh, one of the things that uh, God has intended in the marriage relationship, that it would be permanent that way. And, of course, uh, probably too soon for that, uh, opposing sexual restrictions has become kind of the uh, singular issue in America today. Uh, it is the singular issue, certainly, of modern hedonism. Uh, it is the cause that binds the liberals together more than anything else. No limits on sexual activity, whether it is outside of marriage between a man and a woman or whether it's homosexual activity or whether it's abortions. There is just this general sense that people ought not to be limited in any way whatsoever from enjoying the pleasures of libertine sex. It is the message that Hollywood poses to us in almost every movie, in almost every TV show, and it clearly is a distortion of human nature. It is obvious to anyone who recognizes the nature of man and a woman and the relationship between them when they're bound together sexually that you can't just practice that kind of casual, libertine, promiscuous sex without having some kind of negative consequences, psychologically and socially, not to mention the consequences on the children. And the latest uh, you know, nationwide scientific sex survey, because once upon a time you didn't ask about these things, now they ask about it all the time, uh, but the recent uh, widespread uh, national survey uh, reported to the newspapers under this headline, the revenge of the church ladies. Because despite the pleasure uh, envy in our society today that supposes that lots of other people out there are enjoying unrestricted sexual activity and uh, engaged in this kind of, uh, of a pleasure beyond what most of the rest of us have is uh, really not true, except maybe it is true. What they found out is that those people, and uh, particularly in terms of the women who were uh, virgins when they married, who were faithful to their husbands, 
ha were having more and more satisfying sexual relationships than uh, any of those who were outside of that kind of morality system and thought that they could find that kind of pleasure in casual sexual relationships or in running from one marriage to the next. Revenge of the church ladies may be a kind of a, uh, a uh, sensationalist headline, but it does say something really, really true, and that is if we want to be happy, if we want to be blessed, we can only do that within the context of the uh, rules that God has given in our lives. And of course, uh, you know, that's one of the things that uh, you recognize undergirding this debate about abortion is uh, the sense that somehow, uh, and this is what the final argument really comes down to, surely you can't be serious that a woman is going to be contemned to nine months of gestation and the pain of childbirth just because of a brief moment of pleasure. You just surely can't expect that to be the case. Well, no, we don't expect that to be the case because we expect people to live lives according to God's rule and only have sex when they are in a married relationship and can take care of the child. But, you know, Senator Moynihan, I mentioned him earlier uh, when he was uh, in the uh, Senate, they were talking to him about these new programs in which we're going to, you know, uh, try and get uh, uh, the uh, absentee fathers to pay some kind of child support for the children that they brought into the world, uh, the children that they have uh, uh, caused to be conceived. And uh, the press was like, well, surely you can't expect these men to be subject to five, ten years of, uh, of child support just for one moment's pleasure, can you? And Senator Moynihan looked at him and said, you know, I, I think we're letting them off pretty easy. Because in the Moynihan household, we've made a new rule in the Moynihan household. 30, and that's it. I'm cutting you off when you get to be 30. Uh, so having these absentee fathers take care of these children, at least in part, for a few years doesn't seem that significant to me. One of the other issues that arises at this point of uh, the gratification of a sexual relationship is the issue of homosexuality. And, uh, you know, it seems to me the only real motive for promoting homosexuality, uh, trying to authorize that, condone that, uh, pretend that that's equivalent to the relationship between a man and a woman, is because it would be inappropriate to deny this kind of sensual pleasure to people who are perhaps, though I doubt it that's the case, who are innately uh, inclined in that direction, that it just wouldn't be right to deny them that kind of pleasure. Well, of course, you understand the hedonistic ideas that are behind that. Every one of us has to live a life that limits to some extent the pleasure that we engage in seeking, whether it's sexual or whether it's food or whether it's entertainment. We have to limit that because of various kinds of restrictions in our life. You, you have to limit the pleasure seeking in order to have a genuinely happy life. And we all do that within whatever kind of rules might exist in the system under which we live. And so it doesn't seem to me excessive to say that uh, even if, and you know, most, I'm amazed at social scientists about this, that the uh, ease with which, the facility which they're willing to say 
that homosexual behavior is innate. When the truth of the matter is they are not willing to say much of anything is innate in human behavior. Some of you heard the lesson last night, and I suggested there's an innate difference between males and females. And you got to struggle really hard with the data about that to get most social scientists to agree that, yes, that's innate. That's something we're born with. Because their idea, and rightly so, is that uh, most complex behaviors that people engage in are learned behaviors. And to presume that homosexuality somehow complex social behavior it is, is innate, that just doesn't fit with the rest of the science. But even if it was innate, that we make rules and you say you have to limit this, that, it doesn't seem to me that that's uh, anything other than a defense against their hedonistic kind of philosophy. We require of uh, heterosexuals, uh, at least the scriptures require of heterosexuals that you shouldn't come together and engage in sexual activities unless you're married. And if uh, you are married and uh, for some reason or another your uh, husband or your wife is incapacitated, you still are obligated to uh, be faithful sexually to that person. Eighty percent of Americans will agree with that, that if you're married you ought to be faithful. And if we, can, if we can ask of those people in those circumstances, it's just reasonable that you limit your pleasure under these rules. It doesn't seem to me that uh, there is a, a reason enough to cast out all rules uh, of morality in order probably to uh, allow for this kind of homosexual sort of behavior. Particularly, of course, when the Apostle Paul, I think he's specifically speaking about that in Ephesians 5 and verse 12, where he says, you know, it is unlawful to even speak of the things that they do in the dark. Moreover, I would suggest this about the homosexual relationship. The very nature of male-female relationships, sexual relationships, slows down the typical male propensities for engaging in frequent casual sex. Men and women are physiologically different, and the physiological differences are such that most women naturally want a slower pace of lovemaking than men would be and could be satisfied with. Most women naturally want a long-term relationship surrounding that sexual intercourse because there's very likely to be a child as a result of that. And they want an emotional contact with the person that they are engaged in sex with, as well as a physical contact. And some men don't seem to have the same kind of sense of need about that slower pattern or about that emotional contact or about that long-term permanent relationship in order to enjoy sexual activities. But it is God's plan to say, you know, one man and one woman, and you have to, you have to uh, uh, be considerate of one another, and you have to learn how to pace yourself with the other person in order to have the maximum kind of happiness in the relationship and the maximum kind of, uh, of a bond between you that God intended. But the heterosexual, the homosexual relationship abandons all of that plan. And uh, the homosexual men are no longer then going to have the, uh, the physiological needs and the emotional needs of the woman to slow down their pursuit of sexual activity. And that's why most homosexual men, uh, there are multiplicity of partners as opposed to this idea of settling down with just one person. 
And uh, so they seek out ever more perverted sex as a pursuit of pleasure, unlimited by any physiological rules and unlimited in these days by any kind of rules of morality. And unfortunately, what happens in that kind of single-minded pursuit of physical pleasure is the goal recedes ever further in the distance, the harder they pursue it. And whether it's prostitution or homosexuality or bizarre forms of sexual pleasures, it is clear that when people abandon God's laws and when they seek pleasure for pleasure's sake, that they find themselves in uh, dire circumstances. Apostle Paul looks at that in Romans chapter 1, and he's just amazed as he looks at the uh, Gentiles and their behavior and all of the uh, uh, discontent and problems they cause for themselves. And in Romans 1 and verse 27, likewise also the, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And maybe that penalty is in terms of specific kinds of sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, that's certainly an aspect of uh, that kind of uh, relationship. But I think it's even more than that. It's in terms of the corruption of their own soul because they have abandoned any kind of rules of godliness in order to pursue just pleasure. Well, I did two. Well, what I planned were four. I will tell you. The other two were uh, drugs and alcohol as a means of seeking pleasure and uh, entertainment as a means of seeking pleasure. Uh, but uh, I recognize that I need to uh, be uh, sensitive to your time, and uh, I hope that these things have been helpful to you. Remind you once again that uh, what we're looking at is a difference in two very different worldviews. The worldview that uh, we are here in this life to seek pleasure and to enjoy uh, this uh, physical world just as it is, or the worldview that there is a spiritual aspect to man, there is a spiritual world that is bigger and more important than this world, that there is a day coming when the material world is going to be dissolved and the spiritual world will take precedence, a day in which there will be a judgment. And when you think about that, it requires a very different manner of life. It requires us to examine ourselves and to take captive every thought. It requires us to guard the way in which we interact with the things of this world and make sure they don't take precedence over the things of the world to come. It requires of us what this next song will say. We need to come to Jesus and surrender all. We need to give up worldly pleasures. Yes. We still live in this world, and there are still things that God has designed for us to enjoy in this world. And uh, we are happy in enjoying those things only as we enjoy them in the, in the way in which God has intended for us to enjoy them. We're happy only when we are blessed by God because we put him first and seek his things first. And then he blesses us with the good things in this life. Whether in our families or in our health, we are satisfied with what he gives us because we know that ultimately he is the reality that is most important and so we come to him i think each and every one of us here i hope has this attitude and if not you should examine your heart come to jesus 
and give it all to him. Let's uh, encourage one another as we sing, I surrender all. <laughs>